may be seated. Let's go again to our Father in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, um, we lift up uh, the, the victims and families of the shooting in Texas uh, yesterday. Um, we pray, Father, that um, we pray that they would see your presence. We know you are present always. We know that you are omnipresent. We know that your spirit is at work in every corner of our universe, and it is at work there. We pray, Father, that there would be comfort for those who have suffered losses. Comfort in this life and gospel comfort that lasts into eternity. We pray for the local leaders there, the state leaders there, the leaders around our country, that they might have the wisdom to govern in a way that brings this violence down. And we entrust that to your providential care. Father, we pray this morning also for the nation of Czechia. And Father, we pray for gospel movements by your omnipresent spirit to take root there. We thank you, Father, that the curtain of religious oppression that they had under communism has been lifted. We pray, Father, that that freedom would not be, a, be an opportunity for licentiousness and irreligion, but would be an opportunity to pursue Christ in all of his glories. We pray that revival would break out there, that a steadfastness in the tradition that they have provided us down through the ages that men and women would stand like John Hus for the truth of your gospel. That people would come to know you and that you would build your church in that place. Father, we pray that we would hear your word this morning, that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, even as we read. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know it gets a little warm here, but could someone close the, uh, the door? That would be great. The car is going down the street. It's very distracting. Um, and if we could open our Bibles or turn, click, swipe, tap to 1 Samuel 30. We've got two messages left in 1 Samuel. Um, because of the illness I had a few weeks ago, that's going to get broken up a little bit. We're going to start our summer series of sermons next week. And uh, Caleb Weaver will be preaching. And then I will finish 1 Samuel. And then we will start something new. 
Um, so if you didn't get those, I, I passed out some cards just during announcements, uh, but there are some yellow cards by the entrance that have all the upcoming sermons for the summer through, um, through Labor Day. We'll also get uh, 1 Samuel 30, and we'll dig in. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Yisrael and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because, of the, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where there were... Uh, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten... His spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. 
But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as, is, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of his spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in the Atir, in Aroer, in Shipmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Yeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So who are you? And who do you need to be? Who do you want to be? Who do you want people to think you are? Those are different questions. We'd like to think they have the same answer, but they don't, do they? We have a hard time sorting out who we are at our core from the myths that we tell ourselves and others. And we have a hard time sorting those things out with other people too, don't we? Often we don't get clarity on who people really are or ourselves until a crisis forces us to choose what's really important. In 1 Samuel 30, David faces an enormous crisis, and as a result, something of his root identity, his actual character, is uncovered. In fact, the episode reveals three character traits that delight God and bring his blessing. But then I think it also reveals something else. Let's uh, dig in on that, though. Uh, David has been hiding out with the Philistines for a little over a year. He went to Gath, and eventually he goes to Ziklag because they were uh, outside of the territory controlled by the Israelites. And in a lapse of faith, this is the way I take it, David thought that the Israelite king, King Saul, was going to kill him. That was despite the fact that God had repeatedly told him otherwise. But David, by God's strength, used the mistake to do good, and to serve God's people from his self-imposed exile. He accomplished this by conducting raids on Israel's enemies and uh, finishing the word, of, the word God had commanded Israel to do. Then in chapter 29, one of the Philistine kings told him that, being now a part of the Philistines, David would be required to go to war with his own people, the Israelites, but the other Philistine leaders didn't trust him. David's reputation as a warrior and a former enemy of the Philistines went before him. So the king told him to return home. And that's where we pick up in chapter 30. It's about a three-day march from where they had been camped in Aphek to the town the Philistines had given David in the south called Ziklag. And so they're tired, they're worn out from that journey. But, but no doubt in good spirits, because they were not going to go into battle against their own nation, David's 600-man army arrives at home to discover that the Amalekites have burned the city and run off with their wives and children and property. Now, bad news is always bad, of course, but there's something particularly awful about 
tragedy when it, when it strikes right on the heels of good news. It's like an emotional whiplash. And this was a really terrible tragedy. Almost every one of those 600 men was likely married. Most probably had children. In fact, we, we could imagine that given they had just settled down, they had been running in the wilderness for years, and they finally settled down in one place 16 months ago, we wouldn't be surprised if there had been a recent baby boom. And yet everything is gone. You can imagine they looked in their homes for signs of life, but only found silence and smoke. And so the text tells us they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I think I would do the same. And for David, things are even worse. Because David was the leader. The buck stops there. And the people blame him. He was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. It was David who had brought them to Ziklag. It was David who led them to launch raids against the Amalekites, which no doubt made them a target. It was David who allied them with Achish, king of Gath. It was David who led them to leave the city defenseless while they went to war on King Achish's orders. Most of those decisions are defensible, but it doesn't change the fact that David spearheaded those decisions, and those decisions have led to a tragedy of enormous proportions. What would you do in a situation like that? How would you respond if your entire life almost as literally as possible, was ripped from you in a single moment. All your family, all your wealth, all your resources, most of your friends. And to make matters worse, imagine you're in charge of it all. Lesser crises have driven many decent people to snap, to break and never recover. But David doesn't break here. Instead, he does something remarkable. In the midst of all his pain, all the anguish of his soul, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, it's not uncommon for people to turn to religion or prayer in times of tragedy, but what we have here is more than that. Uh, David has been consistent, although an imperfect follower of God. He's not just getting religion right now at the moment of his crisis. This isn't new. This is part of who he is. But it's also not a matter of desperation. When, when we're hurting or we're scared or, 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 we're, or we're sad, we've experienced great loss, we might cry out, God, why me? And we may turn to God in a way even while sitting in our sadness and pity. And, you know, the Bible gives us uh, examples of that in, in David's own laments in the Psalms. There is a place for that. But that's not what happens here in this passage. 
The text says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't try to strengthen himself. He strengthened himself. Sitting still, doing nothing, was not an option. He was weak from a three-day hike. He was weak from crying his eyes out for who knows how long. He was weak from the emotional turmoil of the tragedy itself, but he strengthened himself in the Lord. David got strong in the Lord. Everything else in this passage flows out of this one idea that David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It's a little similar. It's technically different wording, but it's very similar, I think, in idea to the expression we saw back in chapter 23, when David, at another low point, though not nearly this low, was met by his old friend Jonathan, who encouraged his hand in God. At the time, I said, uh, what, what does it mean to encourage someone in God? I think it means, and I'm basing this on the broad breadth of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that we help someone to savor the beauty of who God is and feast on the marrow of what God has done and be glad with the wine of what God has promised. To savor the beauty of who God is and feast on the marrow of what God has done and be glad with the wine of what God has promised. We talked at the time about some of the things that God had done in David's lives and the lives of God's people generally. And we talked about some of the things that God had promised to David and to David's people. In chapter 23, there's this beauty of a dear friend, Jonathan, risking his life and experiencing, expending considerable personal effort to encourage a friend and a brother in this way. But with no friend like Jonathan, no wife to turn to, no children to rely on, David has to strengthen himself in God. We don't know exactly what that looked like, But similar to before drawing from all of Scripture, looking at David's story, it probably meant that David deliberately chose to reflect on what God had done and deliberately chose to reflect on God's promises. And because he trusted God, those things gave him strength. If David believed in a God who created the heavens and the earth, who chose the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be vehicles of God's blessing, who rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, who divided the Red Sea, who made a covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, who brought them into the land that he had promised, whose promises have never failed, why wouldn't he have confidence that God was in control and bringing about good even then in the midst of that tragedy? After all, arguably every one of those great acts of tragedy in the past, uh, great acts of God in the past, sorry, uh, came in the midst of tragedy. And yet God continued to move history to bless his people. 
What I mean is that every one of these great acts, save maybe the creation of the universe, came in the context of the greatest tragedy in human history, the tragedy of human beings rebelling against God and being separated from him because of their sin. From that point on, the story of Scripture is God intervening in history to rescue his people. Whatever tragedy you faced or are facing, even if your entire family and all your possessions were stolen by a raiding war party and your city burned down, it pales in comparison to that tragedy. A tragedy described so vividly through the prophet Isaiah when he writes, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. I can assure you that no matter what you've been through or are going through, there is no greater tragedy than being separated from the God who made you. And God has been intervening throughout human history to remedy that separation. David had seen it. Isaiah actually introduced those words that I just read with this hope. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Like David, we can reflect on the good things God has done. But we can reflect on even more. Every minute of every day, there is more to reflect on. And we have about 3,000 years of minutes since David But none of the good things God has done stand bigger than this, that God was so set on rescuing his people that he took on flesh and lived among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He allowed himself to become like us so that he could rescue people like us. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the apostle Paul put it this way, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself but becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God became like us so that we could be brought back to him. God experienced temptation, Suffering, pain, and death so that he could rescue people like us. If God would go to those lengths to rescue us from our deepest tragedy, then certainly we can have confidence 
in Him, no matter what bitter pill this world demands we swallow. But we can also reflect on God's promises. We, we do not need to merely rely on what God has done, although that is certainly enough on its own. We can be encouraged by taking hope in God's promises. Unlike the stock market, past performance is a guarantee of future performance because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what has he promised? For David, it was that he would be king. And that meant that David had to carry on. The people wouldn't execute him. God would do good through him. And for us, no less is promised than that our king will return. And when King Jesus returns, he will destroy death once and for all and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Confidence from God's past work and encouragement in God's promises for the future. That was David's strength. And this is the first characteristic of David that is so laudable and and the one that sets everything else in motion is his faithful confidence and encouragement in God. And notice that it's this, being strengthened in God, that allows him to act. Only at this point did David get up from mourning and get roused for action. But rising To action did not mean relying on himself then and and relying on his own strength. It meant, in a way, staying right there with God. So if you look down to verse 7, David calls for Abiathar, the priest, the last priest. He's really experiencing the second tragedy of his life. You might remember that the, the first tragedy in his life was when King Saul executed all the priests, his family members, and he alone survived. Abiathar had already lost his birth family, and now he's lost his family by marriage. But David wanted Abiathar to bring the ephod, the priest's garment, which contained the Urim and the Thummim, a method God had given his his people to learn his will. And as I've said before, these are are tools, and how they, they worked have been lost to history. But, but David calling for them meant that he wanted to rely on God's will more than he wanted to rely on his own. And David asked God whether they should go after these enemies and whether they'd be successful. That's, that's interesting in and of itself. That's two different questions, right? Should we go after them and will we be successful? That leaves open the possibility that God says, go, but you won't be successful. David asked both questions. He's very, he wants to know. And God tells them to pursue with the promise that they would be successful. And so obediently, they go. 
So true devotion, true strengthening in God is evidenced by seeking God's voice and obeying God's commands. If David had sat there in his misery, he wouldn't have been strong in the Lord. If David had gone about pursuing justice his own way, he might have been strong in the world's eyes, but he would not have been strong in the Lord. If David had sought God's voice but then done something different, that would not be strength in the Lord. Strength in the Lord is evidenced by listening to God and then following his voice in obedience. And since God's voice is full of the records of his deeds and his promises, we might say that listening to his voice and being strengthened in God are very, very close to the same thing. Faithful confidence and encouragement in God delight God. They bring his blessing. Seek him in your heartbreak and your tragedies. But let's continue down in this passage. So uh, no doubt exhausted from a grueling march, painful tears. David and his men, they, they set off toward the south where the Amalekites live. Uh, probably another day's march later, they arrive at Besor Brook, uh, a tiny body of water, really, uh, that a lot of the bodies of water in Israel, they dry up during certain seasons and flow during other seasons, but flows into the Mediterranean. And, and some of the men are just too tired to go any farther. And so they get left behind to guard the military equipment while the rest go forward. And as they get into the open country, the party encounters an Egyptian man who they bring to David. This man had been a slave among the Amalekites, and when he got ill, and so a liability for the raiding party, they abandoned him in the wilderness. He's gone three days without food or water, which is just about the maximum time the human body can go without water. Coming off some sort of illness, it is a miracle in itself that this man is still alive. He was apparently with the Amalekites when they raided Ziklag and took the women, the children, the animals. This man had hurt them. But instead of killing him on the spot or threatening him, they show him compassion. They feed him. They give him water. They help him to recover. In the middle of all of David's loss, with hardly anything to his name, he takes time to show compassion. Now, maybe you'd argue they, they showed him compassion before they knew any of these facts, but I think they knew. They might not have known all the details, but they knew what he'd been up to. I think that's why they brought him to David, instead of just carrying him, carrying for him themselves, or ignoring them. And the only reason to bring him to David at all is because this man might have some useful information that the leader of the military needs to know. You might argue that David only showed compassion. I've, I've, I've read this a few places. Some thinkers say that David only showed compassion because this man was a source of military intelligence. But again, I don't think so, because they could have used food and water as a bribe to get the information they needed. After all, this man was basically on his deathbed. But David cared for him before he did any sort of interrogation. 
this seems to be a legitimate act of compassion on someone they might have easily considered an enemy. And David offered this compassion to a man in desperate need just when he had been robbed of everything he had had. David demonstrates enormous self-sacrificing compassion. That's the second characteristic he demonstrates. Now, arguably, David didn't have anything to give. And it's generally foolish to give from your lack for the sake of another person's wants. But there's two things here. First, this was not a want. This was a need, in a need with a capital N. This was a life or death situation. But David also could be compassionate for another reason. He was relying on God's promise that his lack and his scarcity were a short-term problem. God told David that they would overtake the Amalekites. And because David believed God, he was, in many ways, not broke, not destitute, because God's promises are sure. This wasn't David having some vague sense of faith. Right? I'm not suggesting that David just b- believed, and so because he believed he could be assured that he would get some sort of return on his good deed. That's not what we're saying here. God specifically told David and verbally told David that he would be successful in this endeavor. And David believed God. But it's not the gift that's what's impressive here. It's the compassion that lies behind the gift that stands out. And David's compassion does lead to God's blessing. This former Egyptian slave was able to tell them that the Amalekites actually had led several raids, not just on Ziklag. And what's more, he's able to take David's military to where that camp would be. In our tragedies, it's easy to get so centered on our own problems and our own pains. In fact, it's understandable at times. But God loves followers who, as Paul said, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That delights God. The final episode brings us to a third characteristic that David shows. The Israelites, under David's command, come upon the Amalekites, and they are scattered about. They are not in military formation. They are partying eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They are a mess. They are probably drunk. And so exhausted as they might be, David's men attack and absolutely obliterate them, so much so that the Amalekites are basically non-existent through the rest of the Bible. They recover their wives. They recover their children. They recover their livestock and their possessions. But they also recover the treasure and goods that the Amalekites had stolen from the towns of the Philistines and from the other Israelites. They are going to return home to Ziklag richer and more prosperous than before. David himself, as the leader, particularly reaps the spoils. In fact, he looks quite a bit like a conquering king in this passage. They arrive back to the Besor Brook to find their fellow soldiers. But some of David's army 
doesn't want to give the men who stay behind anything. They can have their wives, they can have their children, fine. But since they didn't help, that's it. David has a different perspective. They are a single army. Some of them went to battle, some guarded the military equipment. They share the spoils of war together as one. But David's reasoning, though, is crucial to understanding the policy. Listen to what he says to those who wanted to withhold the spoils of war from the men who stayed at the brook. He says, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Why would, or who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. Do you hear it? The Lord gave them the spoils. The Lord preserved the army through all that marching and the warfare. The Lord gave them the victory over the enemy. The Lord's work belongs to the Lord. And God's blessings are for God's people. Since they are God's treasures, not the Israelites, not David's, they have no claim. They don't get access to God's blessing because they performed the right action on the battlefield or said the right things at the time of crisis. They get access to God's blessing because they belong to God. So, so keep going down this passage with me. David is, is probably right at this moment richer than he's ever been. And considering how much he has suffered, we might forgive him for thinking he finally got his. He's been through a lot. But he doesn't stop with rewarding the soldiers who stayed behind. When he returns to Ziklag, he sends gifts throughout Judah, his tribe in Israel. Most of the last several years, David and his men have been on the run from Saul in the wilderness of Judah. No doubt, they made a lot of friends during that time. We know they were doing good to the people as they moved from place to place. For instance, in chapter 25, we learned that these men guarded the sheep and the shepherds of the region from thieves and from predators. But because these are God's blessings, they belong to God's people, and David is generous in spreading God's blessing. These weren't even soldiers. They hadn't even guarded the baggage. They were just, as the text says, friends. That's a hard word to translate just right. And we shouldn't get the impression that David just sent them gifts because he liked them. Like, I'm going to send these to all the people that are my buddies. Because it's the word we also translate neighbor. You know, like when God says, love your neighbor as yourself. But these weren't enemies. They, they were probably leaders who had showed love and loyalty to David. So it would not have included, I imagine, the Ziphites. You might remember the Ziphites were the ones from Judah who ratted David out to Saul and told Saul where to find David on at least two occasions. That was not a friend. That was not a neighbor. But I wouldn't read into the term friend a close personal acquaintance. That's the way we use it. It's possible but it's not likely given how much time David spent running around and how distant these cities were. He wasn't rewarding his friends per se. He was rewarding God's people 
who had stayed loyal to God. People who didn't even go into battle. David demonstrated tremendous, open-handed generosity with his riches because he knew they weren't ultimately his. He knew they belonged to God, that God had earned them, God had won them, and God had put them on loan with David. And so he could share generously. Many years later, that same ethic continued to be taught and lived out in the Christian community, which considered whatever it had to be at the disposal of the others, who challenged each other to give as freely as they had received from God. In fact, Paul encourages the <coughs> Christians this way, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Blessings from God. So we have these three characteristics of David, his faithful confidence and encouragement in God, self-sacrificing compassion, open-handed generosity. And these are truly things that delight God and bring his blessings. But if you're like me, and you are, there's a bit of a problem because you're not faithful nearly enough. I'm not. Your compassion fails. You're selfish. You're stingy. Don't get me wrong. You're, you're probably far more faithful and compassionate and giving than I am. But does that characterize your every waking moment? Is that who you are at your very core? If we could slice you open, is that the sort of thing we would find in every layer of you? No, you're not that good. And neither was David. We've seen it already from David, lapses in his faith, including the one that led them to even be in this situation in Philistine territory. We've seen moments of vindictiveness in David's heart. That wasn't the lion's share of who David was, but it was part of him. David's imperfect but strong faithfulness and compassion and generosity were what made him, as God once said, a man after his own heart. It made David the kind of king that could rule God's people under God's direction. But ultimately, David was a poor substitute for what the Israelites were supposed to have all along. They were supposed to have for their king, Yahweh, God himself. We need a better king than David. But the God who created the universe and, and who has intervened in history time and time again to rescue his people was preparing just that, a better king. A king who would have to be God himself. That king is Jesus. Jesus was more faithful than David. In fact, the Bible puts it this way in Hebrews 3. Therefore, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, 
as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In this passage, Christians are encouraged that Jesus was more faithful than even Moses, the, the great prophet, because Jesus had all the faithfulness of God himself. He was faithful to follow through on an eternal plan to rescue a people by going to the cross to pay for crimes so that those who place their faith in him can go free. His righteousness in place of their unrighteousness. And he's compassionate. Remember how David showed compassion on the Egyptian slave, though that slave had harmed him? But here's what God says about us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who hated him, whether they knew it or not. And by his death, his haters can become his lovers. Because by faith, the hostility between God and humans can be brought to an end. Christ reconciles people to God. See, here's how we often think. We think that there are certain actions that should make us worthy of God's blessing. I guarded the military equipment. I went into the battle. I read my Bible every day. I didn't miss a day of my Bible reading plan. I say my prayers three times a day. If I do all these things, then God will, will reward me. God will prosper me. God will watch out for me. God will let me go to heaven. But that's not what God has said. It's not what David understood. Remember how he generously gave gifts regardless if the people fought, regardless even if they were in the army? The key is that they received gifts because David understood that the riches were actually God's, so people who were connected to David were blessed. David was God's chosen king. God gave David victory. And so those who were attached to God's chosen king received God's blessings. But now there is a greater king, Jesus, who brings greater blessings and greater gifts, some of which Sarah read about this morning in Ephesians 4. Jesus conquered our greatest enemy, which brought us our greatest tragedy, sin and eternal death. And now Jesus carries the spoils of his victory in that war. And if anyone is attached to that king, King Jesus, that person receives the blessings of his victory. Not because they went to war, not because they picked up a sword, not because they guarded the baggage, but because they're connected to King 
Jesus. The first and greatest gift is the victory itself. Those who are connected to Jesus escape the consequences of sin and enjoy eternal life. But Jesus' gifts are not finished there. So great is his compassion and his mercy and his generosity. That would be plenty. But among his people, and, and, and this is a people thing. It's not a person thing. It's a people thing. It's a community thing. It's a church thing. Jesus blesses us with each other. So in, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes that grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And how does that turn out? What is this grace gift? It's people. People who lead us, people who serve us, people who encourage us, people who walk more closely, help us to walk more closely with God. We are given each other that we might grow in faithfulness, that we might grow in compassion, that we might grow in generosity so that we might be more and more like our king. And as we look more and more like the king, the more and more we will see and experience his blessings. And while we're on the blessings of King Jesus, let's look ahead to one that he promised, a promise which is as sure as the fact that he is the same yesterday and today and forever, that Jesus is returning to judge. And those who are righteous because of faith will join him, and those who reject him will be rejected. And he will create a new universe for us to inhabit. One free of all the ills and pains and tragedies of this life, like the one David experienced, like those you have experienced. And in that recreated world, however it works out, there is a vision given, a picture, a, a snapshot for us in the Bible. John, in the book of Revelation, writes, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. When King Jesus finally removes the last of his enemies, the, the last of the enemies of God's people, the treasures of this world will be his, and he will bring them to his new city. A city where the greatest gift is not even the glory of all the nations, but Christ himself. Let's set our hope on that day and confident in it. Let's be strengthened in the Lord our God that we might be moved to faithful obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would point us to our King and that our eyes would be on King Jesus, all your house. His faithfulness, even to the point of death. His faithfulness to the promises 
that he has made as he continues to intercede for us who are weak and to hold us fast to bring us home. Help us to reflect on the compassion he demonstrated when he died for us who hated him. Help us to reflect on his generosity as he continues to bless us beyond anything we have worked for or deserved or earned. And Father, we pray that we would keep our hope on his great rule. And we pray, Father, for those who are looking for a king, who are looking for blessings, who are looking for strength in the midst of their weakness, that they would see that those things can be theirs if they would only accept that they are all Christ's. That he has won the deepest and greatest victory, the victory which swallows up all other battles. And that by placing their trust in him and turning from their life and their vision, they would find peace and rest and reconciliation with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue worship. Jesus our Lord is crucified Seven times he spake seven words of love And all three hours his silence cried For mercy on the souls of men Jesus our Lord is crucified O oh, love of God, O oh, sin of man, in this dread act your strength is tried, and victory remains with love. Jesus our Lord is crucified. Break, oh, break, hard, heart of mine, thy weak self-love and guilty pride. His pilot and his Judas word, Jesus our Lord is crucified. A broken heart, a fount of tears, ask and they will not. 